Tom Nash, welcome to the new school. Thank you. <laughs> Tom, you're a, uh, you're a physicist, uh, and our subject is our particular universe, understanding what we know, what we don't know yet, and what may only allow informed speculation. And you've done some interesting things. You are a consultant on the, is it LIGO or LIGO? LIGO. The LIGO uh, Gravitational Wave Research Project at California Institute of Technology. And MIT. And MIT, thank you. And uh, a whole bunch of other universities <laughs> because they might be listening. Okay. <laughs> uh, in the past, you've been a <clears throat> consultant on the DARPA High Productivity Computing Project at Sun Microsystems and you were Associate Director for Computing and Technology at Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory. Your specialties include high-energy physics, astrophysics, gravi gravitational wave research, uh, high-performance computing, open science computer security, and also you're interested in the environment and art photography. Um, so as we began to talk about uh, our shared interest in the universe and the structure of the universe, um, we started in some ways by talking about a book uh, by uh, Stephen Hawking called The Grand Design about the structure of the universe and the possibility that there's a multiverse of which our universe is, is one. Um, and as I prepared for this and as we exchanged uh, emails about it, um, really my sense of fascination with this conversation went deeper and deeper and deeper because it seems to me that we're at an extraordinary moment in the history of physics and the history of our understanding of cosmology. Uh, it's it, it really a revolutionary moment. Um, there is this hypothesis about a multiverse as one way of understanding the data. Uh, but if it's not a multiverse, what is it? And one of the things that fascinates me most, and this came up in, in Stephen Hawking's book, is, um, is that so much of the universe that we can see seems so precisely designed uh, to make life possible. And, uh, and physicists have been trying to figure out why in the world should the universe be designed so as to make life possible. And so there are various theories about that. And obviously, as we know, although sometimes it's been given a bad name uh, by some people, uh, religious and spiritual people are often attracted to the idea of, quote, intelligent design. Now, I would argue that intelligent design doesn't necessarily have to mean that a biblical God created the universe for humanity. That's, you know, one interpretation of intelligent design. But it seems to me also that there are other interpretations that, that perhaps there is some guiding uh, intelligence built into the structure of the universe. That there is, uh, that perhaps the universe itself is alive. And that sometimes it seems to me as though the efforts to explain why that's not the case which invoke the multiverse and invoke uh, quantum theories about this is just one of a great number of possibilities and we happen to live in the one that makes life possible. Sometimes those seem to me to be more and more elaborate efforts uh, 
to overlook the possibility, at least, that intelligent design really is built into the structure of the universe, not in some simplistic sense, but in a sense of a wholeness uh, that we're only beginning to understand. Now, I expect you disagree with that, but I thought I would put it out there as my question, my fundamental question, because I think I'm probably not alone in wondering why we have to go to quantum multiverses as an explanation when it is an attractive hypothesis, at least as reasonable perhaps, that there is a coherent structure that we might call intelligent to the universe. Well, I, I, I think we're going to cover some of these issues, but uh, I think where the difference might be in the way of thinking is whether you try to look at this question by going forward in time from some quote-unquote beginning uh, or whether you look at it by going back in time from where we are now. <clears throat> and uh, I think you'll find that physicists and particularly experimentalists like me tend to try to understand things in terms of what we can uh, get our heads and hands around now, uh, and then this cosmological uh, effort is to try to project that back and see uh, what could have happened uh, that uh, leads to things the way they are, as Wallace Stevens said in our English class on the blue guitar, which is where they are now. Um, so I think that may be a slight difference in that kind of thinking. There's a compulsion to try in intelligent design thinking or some of the things that you express to try to project forward. And I, I can't do that because I wasn't there uh, and I can't see what happened. So I, I take the experimentalist view and try to look, well, let's see how things are here and let's try to understand things projecting backwards in time. <clears throat> Okay, so let's take your approach. Uh, does it make sense in that sense to start with the history of the universe? I think it might, actually. Okay, why don't you do that? Well, why don't we, I mean, uh, I, I, I found, uh, you can find a lot of this stuff in Wikipedia. It's incredibly good on, on this subject uh, and generally quite reliable. Um, and I, I think I found this chart, on, uh, which I can't show because this is just audio, uh, 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 history uh, of the universe, uh, and when we talk about these things, I'm going to try to do it in a way <clears throat> where I tell you what my confidence level is, all right? And I might use a star system. So uh, five stars is, I'm pretty sure I'm in Bellinas. Right. Six stars is I'm more confident in something than that I'm sitting here with Michael and all of you. Because I'm not sure, you know, I don't know, this is kind of weird. I uh, could be dreaming or lots of other possibilities, all right? And as we go down to four stars is pretty darn sure. Three stars is uh, probably experimentally t tested. Uh, two stars is, is speculative uh, based upon some really fundamental understandings, but it's pretty hard to test. And one star is pretty good too. And, and if I don't say anything, if I say it's, you know, we really don't know, or you ask me some, you know, way out question uh, about, say, 
parapsychology, I'm going to tell you that that's uh, just disconnected from what we understand, um, and so I can't tell you anything about it. And if you ask me, is, was there a God who created this, I'm going to say that's not, I can't talk about that. I don't know anything about it. Good. Let's go. Okay. So let's, uh, I don't know, let's go backwards maybe. Right. Uh, here we are. <clears throat> we do know... Um, and I put three or four stars with it, that the universe, our universe, which I capitalize, uh, and I, I see some other people doing it too, and it's interesting because um, there are lots of galaxies, as you all know, and astronomers always capitalize, when they capitalize galaxy, they're talking about uh, our galaxy, the Milky Way. And so I've started to capitalize universe when I'm talking about our universe as opposed to these potentially others. So our universe uh, appears to have started 13.7 million years ago. Uh, that number is pretty good uh, and is uh, probably good to uh, half a decimal place uh, in the present uh, measurements. And basically that understanding is uh, based on the fact that we can look out uh, at the stars and galaxies in the universe and <clears throat> we can get some sense of how far away they are. Uh, we can look at uh, the stars and galaxies through telescopes and see them receding from us uh, and they recede more and more the further away they are. All right, And to make a long story short, uh, it's as if uh, you had a balloon uh, and you pasted uh, little galaxies on the side of the balloon and you, you know, when it was uh, uh, small and then you then blew it up and the galaxies go further and further away and the effect is that the further away from any galaxy you uh, might be, uh, it's going to appear to be going faster and faster. And that basically... Uh, if you then project that backwards in time, to use the concept that I was talking about earlier, uh, that projects back to all these things, galaxies, uh, being at one spot, uh, a point, 13.7 uh, billion years ago. And that's pretty well understood, and that's what's called the Big Bang, uh, that moment in, in uh, our uh, concept of time. So... Go ahead. Um, Let's uh, skip backwards. Uh, well, one point on that. Isn't it also true that the speed at which they are moving apart seems to be accelerating? Well, that's another bag of worms that I think we should get into. That, that is uh, extremely important. Okay. Uh, uh, and um, let's, why don't we do that in the context of talking about what's going to happen? Okay, good. Because actually, I think I lied about this to some of our colleagues recently. Uh, I, we are going to keep expanding. It seems to be the present understanding. Um, but the, let, let's go back to um, when stars began to form. And I'm just going to read off of my chart as to what happened as we went. F actually, I'm going to do it the other way. I'm going to go from the beginning now. Um, the, so 13.7 uh, billion years ago, something happened. Uh, and at that time, uh, all the f everything was at some kind of a point, uh, and it, things started to expand at some level. All the forces of nature, which we should discuss uh, a little bit later, uh, were unified into one uh, one force. Uh, there was no distinguishing them. 
and then at uh, about, I guess we're going to have to uh, explain a little bit. When I start using powers of 10, I'm not going to tell you it's 37 zeros or whatever. If I say 10 to the 37, then that's 10 with 37 zeros after it. And if I say 10 to the minus 37, I'm talking about the inverse of that, 1 over 37 uh, 10 to the 37, 10, 10 with 37 zeros on it. So like point zero 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 zero. So in the, in the first uh, 10 to the minus 37 seconds, so, you know, point 37 zeros one, uh, everything was unified. And then, uh, now this, at this level, we're now at the one star level in terms of our understanding of things maybe two, All right? This is where, where uh, some string theory things we'll talk about later come in. Then at about uh, 10 to the minus 36 seconds, the um, strong force, which is the one that uh, ties quarks together to make up things like protons, which are the nuclei of hydrogen atoms and, and form with neutrons, the other um, nuclei and atoms that we know, um, that force separated from the other forces that we know about. So the other forces, uh, I actually missed something. Um, at, the, at, the, at the Planck time, at the, at, the, at the Big Bang moment, gravity separated from, from all the other forces. So it became a distinct uh, force that was behaving on its own. Uh, and then the, all the other forces were unified together for until 10 to the minus 36 seconds. And um, at that point, the force that holds the nucleons together uh, became its own thing. That's it, the strong force. That's the strong force. And at that moment, uh, something happened to cause the uh, universe to suddenly blow up enormously by uh, about 100 orders of magnitude in a space of from 10 to the minus 36 seconds to 10 to the minus 33 seconds, a tiny amount of time. And this is called, uh, in the jargon, inflation. I think it was uh, first conceived of by Alan Guth uh, during the inflationary 1970s, but the idea is... Uh, but yeah, it is, it's an inflation in multiple senses of the word. Uh, and why it happens is something we should get to, but it has to do uh, with a concept that I want to introduce because it's one of several difficult concepts that uh, you need to understand uh, or at least begin to understand uh, because I don't understand them entirely um, and that is uh, that there is an energy in the vacuum itself and in when we talk about the vacuum my wife keeps reminding I need to explain I'm not talking about a bell jar I'm talking about empty space where there's nothing, that there's some energy associated with just the space itself. Uh, and why that is, I want to I discuss later. But that caused this enormous uh, inflation. Uh, and that went on till about... Uh, but before you go on there, yes. is that energy... Uh, the, the stupid question, but is that related to the Higgs field or not? 
It's not a stupid question, Michael, as you fully know. I don't know. No, <laughs> no well, it's not no. a stupid question. Okay. Uh, I thought, in fact, uh, until I was doing a little background for this talk, that, uh, yeah, the Higgs could very well have been that uh, vacuum uh -huh. energy. But I, I'm gathering that, in fact, uh, the Higgs is not a good candidate for that. Okay. And that it may be something else. And, and we'll come back to this. We'll come back to it. But just the Higgs field, we might briefly explain, is in the context of the Higgs particle or the so-called God particle that the physicists are looking for that's been in the news. So we'll come back and talk about that more. But the question I was asking... It's a very good question. Was, it is something like that, okay. all right? And I want to come back to this whole okay, concept of the vacuum. It's a very difficult concept because it's not something that uh, is in our everyday experience at right. all. Uh, and it's also one that is causing a lot of consternation for physicists, because in fact, uh, just to give you a teaser like they do on Channel 5 News, uh, there is a problem of 120 orders of magnitude in our predictions for what that should be. Uh, in fact, it's turning out to be much smaller in our universe. If it, if it was as big as our calculations would uh, have you believe, then we would have uh, accelerated into nothingness in the first uh, uh, 10 to the minus 40 seconds would just be gone. So there's something really wrong in our understanding. And so this is difficult for physicists. Uh, it's been variously called the most, the biggest embarrassment of science or the, the worst error of science. But it's, it's, it's a clue, okay? Uh, and these kind of clues are what uh, uh, the advance of science thrives on. Right. So having the universe having suddenly expanded enormously, and we should discuss why, why we think that happened and why it's so important, uh, we went into a, an epoch that lasted until uh, about a picosecond or 10 to the minus 12th seconds, which is uh, called the electroweak. That's when electricity, uh, magnetism, and the weak interactions, which are the ones that cause some decays of uh, uh, nuclear particles uh, and are really not everyday ones were in fact uh, 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 working all together. And in fact, uh, that's the area that will, uh, that, that theory is pretty darn well understand, understood. I would give it three or four stars um, and we will be discussing it because that's the, that is the so-called standard model uh, and the, the Higgs particle is best understood as being the importance of it, why there's so much uh, noise about it, is that it is the last uh, uh, prediction of the standard model. Okay, now just to clarify here, the standard model is the standard model of physics that physicists have been putting together for the last... 20, 30 years. 20, 30 years, yes. which is the basic collective understanding of how physicists think the world works. Right? Of everything but gravity. Of everything but gravity. Gravity okay. sort of stands alone on right. the side. We think we know what kind of a theory it is and we'll... And, and, up, and through the 70s and 80s, there was a hope and a belief that we might find a theory that would integrate gravity with the, with the other forces and create a theory of everything that enabled us to understand everything. Well, we still believe that. Okay, right? some people, and that isn't. Yeah. No, I think everybody okay. does. I think okay. that is what the string theory and M theory is. Okay. The issue is that the predictive nature of that theory is uh, problematical. Okay. Right? Not problematical. It just basically allows uh, 
all kinds of things to happen, all, all possible uh, masses for particles uh, and all possible, uh, I'm trying to avoid using technical terms, but uh, all, all, all a great variety of parameters to uh, uh, happen with a variety of probabilities that also allows for a variety of dimensions uh, to occur so that it wouldn't have to be just a, a three-dimensional, three space dimensions plus one time dimension that we live in, but could be uh, the theory itself is in uh, 10 plus 1 theory. Uh, so why we're only three dimensions is one of those... Um, I guess this is the time to introduce the anthropic word, one of those anthropic principle issues uh, by which uh, we mean it is the way it is because we are here to see it. If it were any other way, uh, it wouldn't be that way. And this is, in fact, the kind of stuff that uh, a lot of physicists are very unhappy about, and we should come back to that uh, that discussion. Okay, but I, I want to take us on a little diversion here because it kind of keep cutting to the chase in a way. Uh, you brought to my attention a remarkable article by Alan Lightman called The Accidental Universe, Science's Crisis of Faith uh, in Harper's. And uh, so when you say that string theory and the multiverse theory are, are part of the effort to continue our understanding of how the universe works... I think we should also say that there are a lot of people, Alan Lightman among them, uh, who uh, are deeply unhappy with this turn in physics, that, that the hope before that Alan Guth, who you described, a pioneer in cosmological thought, says that, quote, the multi-universe idea severely limits our hopes to understand the world from fundamental principles, unquote. And the philosophical ethos of science is torn from its root. As put to me recently by Nobel Prize-winning physicist Steven Weinberg, uh, we find ourselves at a historic fork in the road. Uh, we travel to understand the laws of nature. If the multiverse idea is correct, the style of fundamental physics will be radically changed. And so, as you and I have discussed, you have a, perhaps a somewhat different view of this, but there are a whole bunch of people... Actually, Weinberg, uh, that quote from Weinberg does not uh, okay. mean that he... Dis he actually is a, one of the proponents of the anthropic principle. So he okay. agrees with Hawking, and I tend to agree with him. Uh, the, the, there are a lot of very unhappy physicists, uh, and we can... Uh, the, the, I, go ahead. Uh, the, and they're unhappy because they go back to the 19th century's hope of being able to predict everything from some kind of initial condition. So the, the 19th century was very successful in mechanics and, and electromagnetism in being able to, for example, you have a billiard table and you have two balls, uh, and if you know exactly the, the uh, position and uh, initial velocity of each one of those balls, you will know exactly what's going to happen according to classical mechanics uh, in, in, uh, after they collide, all right? And so there's this dream of being able to write on a T-shirt uh, or uh, well, even a license plate uh, uh, a single uh, equation from which all of uh, everything can be predicted. Now, the thing about that 
is that, yes, we still have the goal of coming up with a single equation, but there's nothing new about this debate, this unhappiness uh, with uh, absolute predictability. Uh, and in fact, was the huge argument that went on in the 1920s and early 30s uh, about quantum mechanics. And um, the thing you have to, I think in, in, as we go through some of these d discussions, there, there's not a lot that you need to really understand about some of these very difficult areas. And the one thing you have to understand about quantum mechanics, uh, which is, um, I would put at the five-star level, uh, maybe even six, but I'll, I'll give it only five because I'm going to give one other thing six, um, is, is uh, that... It's the uncertainty principle, and, and I'm going to explain it, and where it comes from, uh, and that it is basically a theory uh, where you make probabilistic uh, predictions, right? It's a th the one interpretation is that the uh, uh, theory predicts, uh, that describes wave functions which are, uh, are waves, and these are waves of probability. And you basically can just say that if you do make an observation by, say, looking at this coffee cup, uh, by doing that, you have fixed its position uh, across a certain range of probabilities. Now, in the case of this coffee cup, that range of probabilities is so small that it is predictable. All right, but when you start getting to microscopic scales, uh, that range can be quite significant. So there was a huge amount of unhappiness with the idea that uh, quantum mechanics said things couldn't uh, be absolutely predicted, that it was only a probabilistic thing. Uh, Einstein famously said, God does not play with dice. And so there's a huge fuss over this. Uh, and um, in the end, um, as I said, it's a five-star concept. Uh, we really understand everything. You wouldn't have all your iPhones and uh, uh, solid-state physics and uh, accelerators and all kinds of other things uh, if it didn't work. Uh, and it works at uh, in the quanti quantized uh, electromagnetism has been tested to six decimal places. Right? It's a very, very well understood uh, thing. So things are probabilistic. And quantum mechanics, for reasons that I'm not going to be explaining, you better get Brian Green in here for that, uh, is absolutely necessary. Uh, and when you get down to something that is point-like, like the, um, uh, the initial moment of the universe, the Big Bang, it has to be quantum mechanics all right, of some kind or another. Uh, to, to, uh, and it has to be uh, probabilistic. So um, in that sense... Uh, I don't know what everybody is so up in arms about. Uh, this is just, you know, deja vu all over again. Uh, we're worrying about uh, the, uh, the fact that we can't absolutely predict everything from the underlying uh, M-theory. Uh, and what is happening is that it looks like M-theory can, pre can predict uh, a whole variety of different parameterizations. Um, I believe the number has been estimated at 10 to the 500th. Right? Uh, M-theory being multiverse theory? No. No. Uh, Sorry. Um, well, multiverses are uh, 
potential prediction of M theory. Multiverses are a but prediction. M's, it's not clear what M stands for. Okay. There's, some dis, there's, there's some debate on it. Ed Witten uh, did not want, who is sort of responsible for it. Uh, it, it originally, it was M-brain. Okay. Membrane. Membrane theory. Uh, but he wasn't so happy with membranes, so I think they are now. And so it's, it's M-theory is... But multiverses is a a part of it. So just going back for a moment to Stephen Hawking's, because the way I've been being so far from understanding physics, uh, in fact, in high school, I did everything I could to avoid science and successfully did that. I should have worked but, on you. Um, but <laughs> my understanding from Hawking's about what you're saying about the multiverse is that Hawking's has come to believe, I think, that we're not going to get that single theory that you can write on a license plate, but that there will be different theories that work at, in different topographies, uh, in a sense. And that as long as they work coherently within the range in which they're supposed to work and link with the next theory up, that that's what we can hope for as a set of linked descriptors. I would like to be much more optimistic than you are saying. I, don't, okay. I, I think, and so I think is Hawking, uh, I think we are looking for something that can, a license plate may be overdoing it, but a, a t-shirt. Okay. Um, uh, and that is M theory, but the thing is, it does, when it starts to predict what happens at lower energies, and right. we should discuss that whole concept about effective theories, okay. uh, at lower energies, um, it does it in a probabilistic way. Right. It says, let's just take the example of dimensions, which is the one that really blows people's mind, but is a really very interesting. It says that uh, there's a certain probability that at lower energies, in other words, the ones we live in, uh, this thing is going to condense into something that is uh, three dimensions uh, with one time dimension, the others being curled up in tiny little balls or cylinders or what have you, uh, and uh, with a certain probability. And as a certain probability, it'll be uh, 4 plus 1, a certain probability 5 plus 1, a certain probability is 5 plus 1 plus 3 plus 1, and all kinds of, uh, no, not that one, um, and 3, uh, whatever, all right? Um, there's a whole bunch of uh, probabilities. And the anthropic idea is that if... And one good way of, of of understanding it is if we we are in a three dimensional world because if we were in a four dimensional space world, uh, then the the famous one over r squared laws of uh, of electromagnetism, you know, the force on a charge or gravity in particular, or uh, various other theories. <laughs> These are fundamentally driven by the number of dimensions we're in. I could try to explain that at some level. But if you're in a four-dimensional space, then it'll be one over r cubed. And if it's one over r cubed, then the force that, that uh, makes uh, uh, galaxies is going to be much shorter range. And so it's not going to suck things together as well. You won't actually form a galaxy and stars and things like that. And you just won't have a universe with galaxies. You don't have a universe with galaxies. You don't have stars. You don't have uh, planets. You don't have people. You don't right? have life. You don't have, well, you don't have life as we can imagine it. Mm -hmm. So that is, that, that is an example of the anthropic 
principle is that is the universe we're in has got to be three dimensional. There's a lot more to it. It's all the masses of uh, of quarks and force strengths and things like mm -hmm. that. Uh, and the the I think there's a distinction between being able to write on a T-shirt, which you know, quantum mechanics also is probabilistic about predicting uh, whether uh, you know. Uh, a coffee cup is here, or on a smaller scale, whether a, a, a tiny particle is where it is. And that works, and we can do an awful lot with it. So I just think that this whole argument that Lightman talks about, I mean, I think he actually is uh, more being a reporter here. He's reporting how unhappy a lot of uh, theoretical physicists are with this. And people are going to still try to make M-theory and string theory be predictive. But I don't know. I, I can't get unhappy about it uh, being probabilistic. Right? Because so let's, let's just pause here because I, I want to kind of make sure we're all on this page because it seems so important to me. And so I'm going to continue my efforts to, to understand what we've been saying. What you said, as I understand, you said in, 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 in early physics, we could, you could predict things because theory wasn't probabilistic, right? Right. Okay. And, and that worked really well for a long time. And then science reached a point where... Uh, where quantum physics, that is to say, a probabilistic theory, which does not enable you to predict in a clear linear way, became a necessary tool. And that was the point at which Einstein, who hated this quantum physics, right? He was unhappy with he it. He was un unhappy with it, fair enough. He, he said, God doesn't play dice with the universe. He, he was one of those who yes. was very unhappy yes. with this. And he, he, he maintained that unhappiness uh, and so never participated in trying to quantize uh, gravity, for example. Right, and, and so he continued to look for a unifying theory in a non-probabilistic physics. Yes. Okay, but as you point out, quantum physics turned out to be fundamental to more contemporary ways of understanding the universe and fundamental to a lot of the technologies we have and so forth. So given that that's the case, the way you look at the ideas of the multiverse that Stephen Hawking puts out, which also make a lot of people very unhappy, the multiverse concepts, um, and, you know, when I was Googling that, there's just a whole bunch of physicists and others who, who don't like it for a wide variety of reasons. Um, but from your point of view, if I understand you correctly, um, you have less problems with it because you don't have a problem with quantum physics. Well, neither. I don't think these other people have a problem with uh, quantum physics. Is that they are unhappy that uh, string theory and M theory are not 
well, one of the problems is that M theory is allowing for a whole variety of parameterizations of dimensions and uh, coupling constants, which generate masses and all kinds of other things. And they're unhappy that they have yet to find something in M theory. They are hoping to find something in M theory and string theory, which is really M theory, that uh, is will nail down all these constants. And since this is a work in progress, it's not impossible that they will succeed. But when people like Hawking and others uh, think it's getting increasingly unlikely that they will succeed in nailing, you know, finding that particular requirement in uh, uh, string theories that forces all the other constants of nature and, and the fact that we're three dimensions and so forth, uh, it's, it seems that there are lots that even if it doesn't they don't succeed then there's a way out of this and the way out of it is not shocking to me and that is that this probabilistic interpretation that we're that there's a you know probability that things are going to happen in many different ways now the multiverse thing I have to be a little bit careful with because uh, th this may be just looking at uh, things from various different directions and, and coming up with different uh, approaches. Uh, in quantum theory, there's a certain probability that a, that a particular vacuum, the fluctuation of the vacuum in the M theory would give you the kind of world that we live in, all right? And there's a certain probability they would give you another one. Now, whether there are, you know, whether there are lots of such little fluctuations, or and that simultaneously there are other universes, and what we mean by simultaneous, because it doesn't have any meaning, you know, when you talk about uh, that sort of thing, is uh, really um, hyper speculative. Uh, but Hawking seems to be coming together with a fairly self-consistent concept that I. You know, reading his stuff and thinking about, it, I think, is it the one star level? It's uh, quite plausible. So, continuing with Lightman, because you and I agreed that he was particularly interesting, I want to quote him a little further. Uh, as far as physicists are concerned, the fewer fundamental principles and parameters, the better. The underlying hope and belief of this enterprise has always been these basic principles are so restrictive that only one self consistent universe is possible. That one universe would be, of course, the universe we live in. Theoretical physicists are Platonists. Until the past few years, they agreed that the entire universe, the one universe, is generated from a few mathematical truths and principles of symmetry, perhaps throwing in a handful of parameters like the mass of the electron. It seemed that we were closing in on a vision of our universe in which everything could be calculated, predicted, and understood. Uh, however, two theories of physics, uh, eternal inflation and string theory, now suggest the same fundamental principles may lead to different self-consistent universes with many different properties. According to the current thinking, we are living, by many physicists, we are living in one of a vast number of universes, we are living in an accidental universe, and we are living in a universe uncalculable by science. And then the quote from Alan Guth, who's the guy who did the expansion work, uh, back in the 70s and 80s, the feeling was we were so smart we almost had everything figured out, unquote. 
What physicists had figured out were very accurate theories of three of the four fundamental forces. Forces of nature, strong nuclear force that binds atomic nuclei, weak force responsible for some radioactive decay, and the electromagnetic force. And there were prospects for merging the theory uh, known as quantum physics with Einstein's theory of the fourth force gravity and creating a, a theory of everything or a final theory. And that is the hope that's collapsed uh, as we are describing. Well, I think that's crap. Okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, I think, I think that's, you know, getting back to the, this whole issue of, of quantum mechanics, I, I don't know, you know, why, I think he's overstating. Okay. Right? I mean, yeah, you can't, come up with all the parameters, okay? okay? They wanted to come up with all the parameters. Okay. But why should you expect to come up with all the parameters? If we come up with a self-consistent theory, uh, let's say it's M-theory, which is most right. likely, that, is, that quantizes gravity, which is a big deal, right. that solves a bunch of the uh, open questions, right. all right, uh, and that matches with the universe as we know it, and to make the scientific method happy should make some prediction that we then can go and test, which is what worries people so much about this because it's dealing with a, a scale of energies that's, you know, that's, uh, I don't know, uh, 19 orders of magnitude higher than uh, what the, the uh, CERN uh, accelerator is dealing with. Um, so it's very hard to find predictions from it, but there are some chances, and we, we could talk about some of them, that, that something like that will, will, will be detected, uh, then what are you worried about? I mean, so what is the problem if God does play with dice? So the universe, I mean, it has been. We know it plays with dice. So what is the bloody problem here? I really don't get it. I mean, it's a bunch of, all right, we're, this is going to be on the web, so I better be careful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't, yeah, so they're unhappy. They're not going to be able to, predict every single mass. And they can't even predict the, the dimensions we live in. So, yeah, well, tough. So but if to, they get a self-consistent theory, that's fantastic. All right. You can get it on a t-shirt. And then you can, you can then make a prediction about how many universes are going to be this way or that way or another way. That's great. I don't see what the so problem is. So you're saying uh, that you believe that it, Hawking's and others are pointing to a self-consistent theory that you could get on a t-shirt that may not enable you to predict everything, but at least it's self-consistent and can enable you to understand the universe better. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be careful about predict. You can't predict with precision the particular parameters and dimensionality of our universe, okay. but you can predict just as well as you can with any quantum theory a probabilistic distribution of right. what those would turn out to be each time uh, you roll the di dice and have a fluctuation out of nothing, which okay. is what happens. So okay. We should discuss why we have fluctuations out of nothing, by the way. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, you pick where to go next. I've been pushing this <laughs> Let's, uh, let's deal with this vacuum problem a little bit because it's, since we're so heavy into universes, um, Madeline, my wife, who's sitting there grinning, does not like the word vacuum. She said, what do you mean by vacuum when I was talking about this? But what we're talking about is, is um, empty space. That space and time, see, we've, we've, we haven't really gone into some of the, the things here, but this is all right. Um, empty space 
uh, has some energy associated with it. Uh, and the question is, why is that? All right. And why, when we talked about quantum mechanics a little bit, and I told you it was probabilistic, and I mentioned the uncertainty principle, which comes out of the fact that these, this, this theory is a theory of waves of probability. You can't get, um, if you have a wave, you can't, loc- you can't uh, uh, freeze both its, the position of something in a wave and its velocity. And it turns out that when you do this for quantum mechanics, uh, it's the same sort of thing. So you you cannot know absolutely the a position and its velocity or its momentum or, or energy, if you wish. Um, and so what that means is that let's say you the, the, the physicists love what they call the simple harmonic oscillator, which is essentially uh, something on a spring or a pendulum. All right, and in classical uh, physics, you can easily com- compute what a pendulum will do, and that one that's uh, you know a size that we can deal with, uh, you know, can come to stop, and you know if you don't touch it, it'll just sit there. But if you do uh, that kind of a simple harmonic oscillator on a quantum scale, it'll be twitching. It'll never be absolutely still. It'll always be uh, twitching, and the reason for that is that if it weren't twitching, then you could locate it both exactly its position and how fast it was moving. And to say that it's not moving at all and that it is uh, at a, a particular position uh, violates the uncertainty principle. Okay. Now, if you want to look at the vacuum itself, there are two ways of looking at it, and I hope I don't get in trouble uh, on one of these. But I think that if um, you look at what the energy is of a particular point in space, uh, and you know exactly what point you're talking about, that's again a case of you can't both know the position and the, uh, uh, the energy uh, precisely. But another way to, to look at it is that when... Uh, after quantum mechanics got going, uh, in the uh, after World War II, Feynman and others developed uh, quantum field theories, which were uh, quantizing uh, electromagnetic fields, electromagnetism and the field of electricity, electric field and magnetic field, and and the like. Uh, and these are mathematically very complex, and these are the ones whose, uh, after the success of this, uh, have made predictions uh, at the 10 to the minus 6th level, in other words, one part in a million, so they're really robust. Uh, the classic one was the, the, um, the lamb, uh, what's it called, the lamb? Lamb shift. Uh, there were the tiny little um, energy levels in the hydrogen atom that were measured that only were split because of uh, these kind of uh, uh, fluctuations. So when you do quantum field theories, it turns out you're always thinking about the, the uh, fields as being little harmonic oscillators. All right, so that at any point in space, they are like a little pendulum or a spring thing, and they can't be absolutely zero. All right, so fields are always popping in, uh, you know, popping out and popping back into the into the nothingness. All right, uh, and if you're uncomfortable with that, 
I'm not surprised, right? But it's just the way things are on the blue guitar, right? They just pop in and out, uh, and they just do that, and we see the effect of that all over the place, uh, not least in the lamp shift, but in, in, in uh, superconductivity and everything else, all right? So it's uh, a, um, uh, uh, a well-understood uh, phenomenon. Now, um, how did we get into all this? Well, you uh, said let's let's talk about the vacuum. vacuum. All right, so yeah. the vacuum comes into our discussions in a number of ways. Um, the Higgs field is uh, a field of the vacuum. All right, the uh, inflation is a result of uh, a vacuum field. All right. These fluctuations of the extremely early universe are also fluctuations of the vacuum. All right. So we, our universe, in the Hawking concept, is a fluctuation uh, that just happened to fluctuate right uh, for us. All right. Now, and the acceleration of the universe is also a result of of a of a uh, uh, some kind of a vacuum energy. So when you talk about fluctuations, can we also is, is a term like vibration a synonym for fluctuation in that sense? Uh, yes. Uh, it's, a, it's a rough synonym. It's actually used, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a kind of a, yes. So, and just to, uh, so the, the, again, this, I know this is an analogy, but the, the cosmic, the sort of hum of the universe, is that hum a expression of uh, of what's going on in the vacuum, or is that an expression of something more mechanical? You're calling about the, the cosmic microwave background? Y yeah. Yeah, now that's something else. Okay. Um, uh, that, in when we were talking about the history of the universe, if we get a little bit further to, uh, I think, a million years, mm -hmm. uh, at that point, uh, there had been a lot of photons running around in the soup mm -hmm. of what was happening. And about a, uh, after a million years, um, the um, electrons started to couple to the nuclei that were floating around, formed hydrogen and helium nuclei. At that point, the photons were free to wander around. And so we can look back and see those photons uh, in the microwave um, with incredible precision. All right, and um, that is the cosmic microwave background. And in looking at that across the sky, you can see certain fluctuations. And it turns out that one of the arguments that Hawking uses to support the multiverse and the no boundary condition uh, concepts is that the fluctuations that you see, which point back to some initial condition fluctuations ac you know, across the sky, uh, seem to agree very well with the kind of predictions that uh, you can make, mm -hmm. all right? So it's related, but it's a different thing. Now, this is actually something at a much, much lower level than that. Uh, it's just there all over right. the place. So, but let's go back to the Higgs field for a minute, because you said that's not a good candidate. I don't know why. Okay. I don't know why it's not a good candidate for the inflation um, and I think this is showing you the areas that we're not very, uh, we in general are not fully understand. Let, let's proceed a little bit on the vacuum because it'll, okay, it gets into it. I mean, there, um, um, the Higgs field is 
is one example of a vacuum field. Uh, and it is a, a pretty complicated issue, and I'm, I'm going to put it off a little bit, but essentially it's a field that will um, help to give masses uh, to at least the two particles that are the that are analogous to photons for the weak interactions, the so-called W and Z bosons, all right? Um, and the Higgs gives masses to them and also allows a mechanism for giving masses to the leptons and the quarks, the quarks being the ones that make up uh, nucleons. Somebody that in one of the articles that described the Higgs field as like molasses, that's something Yeah, goes I know. Brian it. Green does that, and yeah. Madeline thinks that's a great description, and I am very like uncomfortable with okay. it. But it's Brian Green, and he's probably right. <laughs> well, at least Madeline and I can <laughs> get together on that. He's probably right. I mean, uh, yeah. The point is that the bigger, the bigger things going through it get more stuff sticking to them, and the smaller not, ones not get less. Not bigger. It's, uh, I, I really think it's the uh, slipperiness is okay. the issue. How uh -huh. slippery something is. Uh, it determines how easily it gets through, and then that gives an inertial, you know, it slows it down, gives it some mm -hmm. inertia. Yeah. Uh, I think it is a valid, um, uh, I know it's a valid uh, interpretation, but... Um, You're not happy with it. I'm not as, yeah, I mean, it is the vacuum grabbing at things okay. in different ways. Yeah. But in the case of the Higgs, the, the Higgs will give mass for sure to the W and the Z, which are the the exchange particles for the weak interactions. They, it is also a potential mechanism for giving masses to the quarks and the leptons, but we don't know that for sure. Now, if it turns out that they can't find the Higgs particle... There there. are some uh, uh, cop-outs, okay. right? uh, one of which is known as technicolor, composite things, there are various things. Something We do know that something must be going on at that energy range. So it won't be a, a fatal blow for the standard theory of physics if they can't Well, the standard it. model works as it is. It'll yeah. just be, uh, we know that something, we know that the standard model breaks down, the, the electroweak uh, uh, model breaks down uh, at around 1 TeV. And the most likely scenario is that the... the, the, the That's a very small size, I take it. Well, it's a very high energy. It's, oh, I see. Sorry, very it's, high a, it's a thousand... Well, it's a very small size. It's a thousand... Uh, a thousand billion electron volts, all right? Okay. It's, uh, you know, the energy scale that the, the, um, the CERN uh, accelerator and the Fermilab one is just at the edge of it. Okay. So we're just peeking into a place where we know something has to be going on. Right, whether it turns out to be the Higgs mechanism or not, uh, it's likely it is. Um, there's some very strong hints that it is, um, but that also has some serious inside baseball problems uh, with it. Uh, that, uh, well, for example, uh, assuming we find the Higgs. We would have expected, in the simplest of worlds, a whole slew of other particles. Um, so we've not talked about symmetries, but, um, but a whole slew of other particles that are called supersymmetric particles. Um, and the reason for them is being postulated is that the Higgs scale, uh, this 1 TV scale, is 16 orders of magnitude, if I've got my numbers correctly, below 
where gravity comes in, uh, which is at like uh, 10 to the 33 electron volts. So there is this, it's, in the jargon it's called the hierarchy problem because there's such a huge range differences in scales. And technically it causes problems in calculating things like the Higgs masses and some of the other masses because you have to sum things up over all these orders of magnitude. So something has to be uh, either setting a lower scale, and there's theories for that, uh, or uh, if you had a symmetry where for every particle now we have to get into spin, all right? Particles are identified by, they have an internal degree of freedom called spin, which is sort of like what you think of as spin, but not exactly, all right? It's certainly an angular momentum, but it's sort of like that. But it, um, there are particles that have, um, in, and the spin has to be quantized like everything else in quantum mechanics. So there are particles that have integral spin, like zero, one, two, and so forth. Photon has spin one. Um, and there are also particles like leptons and quarks that have half integral spin. And so when we talk about asymmetry, we're saying that the higher theories of uh, physics will not distinguish between something that is symmetric to something else. And so supersymmetry says that the theories will not distinguish between things that are spin, uh, that are integral spin and things that are half integral spin. And there's really deep, deep understandings of, uh, and deep issues here that uh, really impact our lives about why Half integral uh, uh, spin and integral spin is is fundamentally different, but for our discussion, the bottom line is that when you do the calculation, they come in with a minus sign, and so if you then add up all the effects of the known particles, and that blows up because of this huge scale difference to to the gravity scale from the from the um, electroweak scale that we know. If you had another set of particles, one for each particle we know that was its supersymmetric partner, in other words, if it's an integral uh, particle, it'll have a, uh, a half integral, an integral uh, particle, it'll have a half integral partner, uh, then when you sum everything up, it'll cancel, and then things are okay again. And so there are really deep reasons for wanting this, and physicists have a lot of fun with the names of things, so uh, quarks are called squarks, and... Uh, uh, the top quark has a partner that's the stop, mm. and uh, then for the uh, uh, half integral guys, they call uh, uh, well, there's a Higgsino and a Gluino and all kinds of things, mm. like funny little names. But it's serious, and the problem is, in the simplest of that theories, you expected that to have been seen by now. Now, there's a lot of reason to believe that. It's possible that uh, uh, it's a little bit more complicated than simple approach. In other words, you would have expected the Higgs boson to have. No, the Higgs is is okay, okay still. All right, but the super we should have seen a batch of supersymmetric particles along right? with it. Uh, well, already around. at Fermi okay. Lab and in the early CERN. And you stuff, haven't seen them. And they haven't shown up. And what and does that mean? It means that there's a problem. Okay, <laughs> uh, it, but it, the problem could be as simple as it's a more complicated right. Uh, right. Uh, than, the, than the simple. We always like the simplest approaches, okay. but it could be something a little bit more complicated, or it could be that it's a completely different 
thing. Right. right. So having just a simple Higgs and not having simple supersymmetric particles is, is an issue. So let me just go one more step on the supersymmetry thing because it's related to uh, our stuff. Um, when we talk about quantizing gravity, which is what M-theory is all about, all right, is trying to quantize, because we know that we're talking about incredibly small distances in a black hole or at the beginning of the universe, which comes to the same thing. So it no longer can be the classical theories. It has to be some kind of quantized thing. All right. It turns out that uh, when you do that with gravity, um, the theory blows up. This is worse than the problem I just mentioned uh, with regard to, to uh, 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 the, the Higgs masses and the scale thing. Mm -hmm. This is the theory itself. And when I say blows up, I don't mean it blows up like the universe blew up. I mean it, it mathematically blows up. That when you do a calculation, you get infinity. All right, and the, the jargon is that the theory is blowing up. All right, and once again, the way out of it is to talk about supergravity, supersymmetric gravity, so that all particles must have a supersymmetric particle uh, uh, partner, and that, for the same reasons, because they come in with a minus sign, means that supergravity works, and supergravity is essentially M theory. And uh, Hawking made a, a, a a snide remark in one of his lectures uh, a bunch of years ago that uh, theorists used to sneer at supergravity, and he said they're so embarrassed that they call it M theory now. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay, because it seems to be the right the right thing, but that really so. So that, let me ask another. So just just a, okay. half a step further. So that means that there really have to be supersymmetric partners around, right? uh -huh. and so it, there's a lot of things that are connected okay. here. A couple of areas I want to make sure we get to are just because people have heard about them and wonder about them is where do dark holes, dark energy, fit? black holes, black holes, and 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 yeah, and dark what's matter. dark matter? Where did black holes and dark? Uh, well, matter there's a whole bunch of things. There's three yeah. three topics okay. here, okay, uh, thank and you. they are different. Tell, um, help us. Um, Let's do dark matter because we can get rid of that one quickly. Okay. All right, um, we are made of uh, nuclei, you know, things based upon quarks and stuff like that, uh, and that's all fine. Mm -hmm. um, when you look out at the uh, galaxies and things like that, you can get an estimate of uh, how much mass there is. Uh, by looking at how fast the galaxies are rotating and what their distributions are. And this turns out to be a much bigger number than uh, if you just add up the amount of light that you see and guess what the mass, what project to what the mass is. All right, so there has to be a lot of matter that is dark. Some of it could be just you know, Jupiters floating around that are not shining, but these numbers have been pushed down and so, in fact, um, uh, I think, and it could be neutrinos floating around, which is, was, used to be called cold dark, you know, hot dark matter. So I think it's now thought to be supersymmetric particles, all right? But they have not been detected, all right? Uh, we know that the universe is, uh, I think the latest numbers are that our kind of matter uh, is 4.7%. I can't find it here anywhere. 
Um, is what? Is 4.7 percent. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's hard to find. I'd, I'd like to get that, this number right. Well, that our kind of uh, matter is like 4.7 percent, and um, dark matter is in the 20 percent range. I can get you the exact number if I ever find it on my mm -hmm. notes here. Um, but that leaves another whole thing, which was discovered recently, uh, called dark energy. So dark energy and dark matter are completely different animals, all right? Um, dark energy is, in fact, the vacuum energy we're talking about, okay? And it turns out that... I'm just wondering how far I should go with this. Um, well, go, go a little ways. <laughs> Well, we, have, we need to do uh, general relativity here. All right. Okay. Um, sorry? No, I'm just trying to roll back. I want to see how far I want to go back. I think, I think it's worthwhile going through it. One of the, the, the things that we really understand that I would give six stars to... Uh, I believe it more than I believe them here, is special relativity, which was Einstein's uh, understanding of the early part of the century about how uh, uh, time and space are related. Uh, the initial motivation had to do with the fact that uh, it was observed that the speed of light was the same in all directions, uh, and uh, it didn't make any difference. You know, so on the Earth being moving around the sun, that was a little bit embarrassing because you would expect, well, since we're moving in this in one direction at this season and another direction another season, that should add to the speed of light, uh, which was the conventional 19th century uh, thinking. But that was not happening. In fact, it was found in an experiment done uh, by Michelson and Morley uh, on an interferometer, uh, which determined that, in fact, the speed of light was the same in all directions and in all seasons. And so Einstein um, developed the special theory of relativity. And I find, um, I have some disagreement with my esteemed wife on the subject, that historical ways of understanding things are uh, often difficult. Uh, and in fact, the right way to think about special relativity is the following. Uh, it's just, uh, it, you all understand that the Pythagorean theorem, that uh, the distance between two points is, the shortest distance between two points is x squared plus y squared plus z squared if we're in a xyz uh, coordinate system. Um, and um, that is known as a, a geodesic, the shortest point between uh, distance between two points. So Einstein essentially says that if you bring time into the business, then the shortest distance between two points in space-time is x squared plus y squared plus z squared minus t squared. So the minus is a God-given thing, right? And it's just not worth, it, it's, it is just absolutely fundamental and it leads to uh, uh, incredible things. What are we talking about when we talk about it? We're talking essentially about the time that light takes, uh, something that's going the speed of light will take uh, to go from between two points is what that 
you can go the other way, t squared minus x squared plus y plus z squared is, all right? And so that is a, a, a very fundamental aspect of it. So then uh, Einstein started to look at gravity and what happens when you have acceleration, because all of this was in the context of things that are moving at, at non-accelerated, at constant speeds from each other. So he starts looking at acceleration and he tries to come up with a gravitational uh, theory. And the long and short of it was that he understood that, that you could not distinguish between an acceleration and a force of gravity. This is known as the equivalence principle. And he came up with something which essentially relates the um, uh, amount of energy you have, it's called stress energy, the mass and energy you have in a little bit of, of, of space with the curvature of the space itself. Right, and you can understand that we live on a curved surface. All right, we live in the Earth is a curved surface. All right, and we're talking about shortest distance between two points on a a closed surface is a a geodesic, a great circle route between here and Madrid or wherever you're going. They they don't go straight. They go, I mean, they don't go straight uh, east-west. They go slightly north. They go up across the Arctic. Well, you, there's really, it's only extending conceptually from the surface of the Earth to a, uh, a fourth sphere. In other words, instead of a, 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 a three-dimensional, a, a two-dimensional surface and a three-dimensional space, you can start thinking about a three-dimensional surface in a four-dimensional conceptual space. But actually, it is just a three-dimensional curved space with time, all right? And when there is any energy or mass, that uh, leads to a curvature of that space, uh, which uh, if there is enough of it, uh, you can see, for example, the the original test of of Einstein's theory was the uh, eclipse of 1916 that was observed in Brazil and Africa and Sobral. Uh, and they could see that the light of a star right at the edge of the sun had been uh, shifted by, I don't know, a few uh, arc seconds. And it was, in fact, you would expect something like that from Newton's theory, but you would expect a factor of two less. All right, and so this was a huge success for Einstein. All right, uh, and this essentially was, uh, and it was headlines all over the world that it was correct. Um, so bring us back to how you're going to use that. I'm going to use it because we're going to now talk about when there's a huge amount of mass, mm-hmm. you get into. We're going to go in two directions, but let's do okay. the black hole one. If you have a huge amount of mass, space is so severely curved that it's called a black hole. And it's a black hole because you get to enough mass, then uh, anything that's within a certain distance of it will fall into that black hole. And clearly, at the bottom of the black hole, it's so dense that we're now a point-like, all that matter is at a point, we now have to be quantized. And this is the, this is the reason for trying to quantize uh, 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 gravity and general relativity, and it has not been an easy task. Uh, and that's what M theory is all about, and that's what the beginning of the universe is all about. So, that's so are these black holes equivalent in their singularity, or whatever the right word is, to the space we, that, that we were in at the beginning of the universe? In other words, we do think things so. get so concentrated we think that so. it's like? So could it be that 
a black hole at some point gets big enough that it creates an energy at the bottom that blows everything up again? And uh, there have been um, theories like that, uh -huh. but uh, okay. in fact, it appears that black holes, in fact, decay. But that's a whole, whole okay. other. Okay, um, so those are black holes. So those are black holes. So now let's do the acceleration right. question. All right. So Einstein's theory related um, the um, the the energy that you find in some place in space. I'm going to use a little jargon. It's called the stress energy tensor, uh, and it can be written as a capital T, uh, actually boldface, but anyway, uh, to the curvature, which can be described by um, a rather complicated uh, nonlinear function, uh, which is called Einstein's uh, curvature uh, tensor, capital G. And they're related in the right units by g equals 8 pi t. So you really can get that on a t-shirt. Right? In fact, I have it on my license plate. <laughs> okay. It's the gray Porsche. Outside. That's right. <laughs> uh, g eq 8 pit. And I, I could take a slight diversion here that I had a slight fight with the DMV over it uh, because I was told that this was pornographic. And so I couldn't have it. <laughs> And so I then, I couldn't get any attention, so I finally uh, called the governor, governor's uh, office and said, do you really want me to go to the television stations and tell them that you guys think that Einstein's equation is pornographic? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, within 20 minutes, I got a call from the DMV and I got my license plate. Oh, nice. <laughs> anyway, um, so anyway, g equals 8 pi t was what Einstein wanted things to be. But there was a problem. And the problem was uh, that, uh, that this implies that the universe uh, is not static and it's gonna, that if there's masses around, it's going to be dynamic, it's going to expand and contract and things like that. And Einstein didn't like that. So he stuck in a constant which is known as the cosmological constant plus lambda. So it was g equals 8 pi t plus lambda. All right, uh, I'm really simplifying here. Um, and a few years later, uh, this is in the 20s, uh, Hubble um, was looking at, the at galaxies and saw this business I mentioned earlier, that the galaxies are moving away from us and that, in fact, the universe is expanding. And so Einstein said, this is the biggest mistake I ever made. There shouldn't be a cosmological constant. Uh, and so he set it to zero and wanted to drop from his equations and make it, it doesn't fit on my license plate anyway. Um, but the problem is what the cosmological constant does it is essentially just the vacuum energy, uh, a vacuum energy. And to make a very long story short, instead of, if you just take the, the simple equation, then you expect all of gravity to sort of slow down in expansion, all right? But uh, because uh, ordinary matter will essentially attract e each other. But the cosmological constant, for reasons that I think are exactly the same as the fact that the time comes in with a minus sign, comes in essentially uh, as a, uh, a repulsive, uh, uh, I, I don't want to use force, all right? Uh, it causes some repulsion, acceleration in the expansion of the universe. And a few years ago, um, 
some of our Berkeley friends who just got Nobel Prizes, uh, looked at a certain class of supernova, which are exploding stars, that are understood to always give out just exactly a certain amount of light so that you can use them as what they call uh, uh, precision. Uh, they, they will tell you exactly how far away they are from you but by the amount of light that you're getting so you know their exact distance, right? And so they looked at these and they found that in fact the universe was uh, not just expanding but was accelerating in its, in its expansion. Um, and that was due to this cosmological constant. Now this is a vacuum energy. The problem is that when we try to calculate it, let's say we use the Higgs uh, to calculate it, I think with the Higgs we get, uh, in the units we use, um, there, there's a, what's called a critical uh, energy density. Why don't you keep it simple for us? I am. Okay. <laughs> I got it. But you, we, oh, need to, uh, we need to uh, okay. continue to keep it simple. Let's put it that way. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Um, well, the, our, our universe is very flat. Right. And the amount of density that makes it f flat uh, is called the critical density. Okay. And we are extremely close to that. And okay. that that's, gets us back to inflation. That's why it is. All right. But so you were asking earlier about weak ener uh, uh, dark energy and dark matter. Mm -hmm. And I told you that there were like 4% and 24% and 20%. The remaining part is the cosmological constant, and that is about 74%, or 70-something like that percent. Um, and it all adds up to approximately one. Uh, and one may take an aside, this is another case of where the anthropocentric ideas of uh, our uh, uh, cultures um, are breaking down. I mean, we know, now know that we're not at, this, uh, uh, not at the center of the solar system. We're not at the center of the universe. Uh, we're not even made of most of the matter in, uh, in the universe. We're not even most of the energy in the universe, all right? By, we're only a few percent. So it, it, it's actually a very interesting result, and it means that the universe will ultimately keep expanding um, until everything sort of becomes frozen, cold, and nothing happens anymore. Uh, now, the problem is that when you calculate with the, the Higgs uh, uh, field, you say, ah, that's great, that must be what's doing that. All right? You do that, not only do you not get 0.7, you get 10 to the 53. All right? So that's, just, that's not going well. But it's worse because there's a whole, everything else has to have, every other uh, force has to have a, um, a, a vacuum energy. All right? And when you add them all up, it's something like 10 to the 120, which I mentioned earlier is a, a real problem. So not only are we clueless about this, but it is a real clue that something is going on. Hawking's argument is that this is another anthropic thing uh, coming out of the uh, M theory, I don't understand that comment, but um, I have to accept it. Um, that in fact, you could get this to work out. This is known in the business as fine tuning. When something is 120, how do you tune it down so it's just 0.7, right? Uh, we got a big fine tuning problem. 
I want to begin to open this up for uh, your questions. And uh, uh, Tom, before I do that, and I'll do it again at the end, I'm just enormously grateful that you're trying to walk through this with us. And forgive I'm my having, I'm having fun. Forgive my nonlinear approach to the conversation, but it's I fine. need to uh, I need to ask questions that I have some hope of understanding at least a small portion of the answer to. So I want to start with questions from people uh, who uh, have enough physics background to be asking the more physics-related questions. So let's start with those. Who has enough physics background that, that you're speaking the same language that Tom is? OK, no physics questions, huh? I mean, physics technically, but you have a, a physics question it's to ask? Okay, go ahead, Ian. Yes. As you have um, uh, spoken about all these uh, theories, and it seems that that desire to have one unified theory prevents people or uh, physicists like yourself from going further than that. I uh, uh, Every time I see a program or uh, see Brian Greene or see uh, uh, Hawkins or somebody else, the things that they talk about seem interesting in, in, in just what they are. They don't have to be in a unified theory. And I think that this idea of a unified theory is always playing against that, uh, 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 what is it, intelligent design uh, theory, which I don't believe in, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and for a lot of other reasons. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that all this independent work that does not eventually lead to a unified theory keeps the, the questions open. And I think that's what the mind is. It just wants to keep questioning. And uh, I don't know. Well, I think, I mean, let me help you a little bit with this. The goal is some kind of a unification of the, and a, you know, a, a underlying understanding of everything. But when we look at things, you know, when we look at things in our everyday energies, and we talk about classical mechanics and classical electromagnetism and radio waves and things like that, when we look at things at the energies we can reach uh, with accelerators, then we have to use quantum mechanics and special relativity. And when we look at the universe, we have to look think, talk about uh, uh, general relativity. And when we start thinking about the beginning of the universe, it has to be quantized uh, gravity and quantized general relativity. So each one of these has to somehow connect where they overlap, all right? And the way to think about it is when we talk about, say, quantum electrodynamics, that is an effective theory that works in the energy ranges up as, as far as we can detect. Um, and we look at electroweak, as I said, it breaks down at 1 TeV. So these are effective descriptions, effective theories that work in their domain of applicability. And... If you go beyond that, then something else has to happen. But the whole gestalt has to stick together. And, and that is fundamental to what we want to have happen. It's not like it's preventing you from understanding more. We understand these things, and there are many people who penetrate deeply into solid-state physics or, or uh, biology or whatever. These are all penetrations into parts of it. But there must be some overall thing that holds the whole thing together. Other questions? Yes. Well, I'm 
having trouble even formulating a question here, but but um, I it, I'm having trouble with the concept of the multiverse, and and wondering why um, that so often gets invoked because it seems to me that if okay, say say you go so far as to accept that. At the very beginning, there was a fluctuation that created our particular universe, and that it could have been some other fluctuation that would have created one that was completely different. But, but say there, that there was this one, and, and, and here we are, and so within that um, evolving universe, it, it seems reasonable that there should be a self-consistency throughout it, and that, and that there should be um, somewhere out there, some way of... Of, of pulling it all together um, without having to invoke the necessity of, of, of multiple other universes overlapping or coexisting or whatever. And, and historically, you know, every time there's been a breakthrough in understanding of science, um, the whole thing has, has condensed into um, an elegant simplicity um, out of a lot of complexity that that was previously you know mystifying and and like you know f equals m a and e equals m c squared and that kind of stuff and so it's it just seems like some some major fundamental concept is is missing here and that um, it's out there somewhere and that, and that once that's grasped the the need for um all these parametric tweaks and 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 bizarre concepts like multiple parallel universes will fall away, and it'll will be this aha moment. Is that is that really naive? Or, I mean, it's not naive. I mean, that's exactly what the the debate that that Michael was reading to you from Lightman's uh, article. A lot of theorists uh, feel like you do, but on the other hand, you know, it it isn't any less simple to have a, a, a theory that uh, is probabilistic as to what the parameterization and dimensionality is going to be. That's not, it could be a very, very simple, maybe a one-liner. I, mean, uh, I mean, it probably will be a one-liner. Right? I've never seen the exact way they write down these M-theory things because I don't, I'm not sure where they stand. But they're simple. All right? It's just that they, uh, why do you expect that all universes that could possibly be have to be the way this one is. All right, so you have to be a little careful with this multiverse thing. I think I used that line before because it may simply be just as Hawking uses um, Feynman's concept of different histories. All right, and when you do quantum electrodynamics or other quantum field theories or quantum mechanics, you basically are summing and you look to see what's going to happen, you have to sum over all possible histories that will get you to what it is you want to, to see whether it's going to happen or not or what probability it's going to have. So you sum over all possibilities, all right? Now, normally you're going forward, but now we're going backwards, all right? And so he wants to sum over all. It's the same thing. Some, we know what we are now, so let's sum over everything that could have given this to us. And when you get back to the beginning, uh, it can be a lot of different possibilities. 
And so th that's all it is, is that it's a sum over histories and it, which is just quantum mechanics is what I keep coming back to. And so I just, I personally cannot get hung up on this. Now, it's not impossible that something in M-theory will come along that will say everything's got to be the way, way it is. But I'm also not unhappy if they come along with a simple probabilistic distri uh, distribution of how things are. And at the moment, I think that's where they stand, and they think they're 10 to the 500 different possibilities, which seems like a kind of specific number to me. But uh... Maybe you should put that on your license plate. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to say that your, your dialogue ended with uh, exploration of the dark energy not being the dark matter. Is that, is that where you wanted to go, or was that just as far as we got this time? Well, we, we wandered around. I mean, uh, I had, the reason I stopped there is that I have an absolute premise that a group of people can't sit for more than an hour and a half without beginning to interact. And so that, it wasn't that we reached a logical conclusion. It was that we ran out of the time before we needed to start interacting. So you're, you're asking a good question. No, I mean, uh, you know, opening here. My yeah. question basically is, mm -hmm. is there some sort of a capper that you'd like to put in acknowledging the... Yeah, we're going to try to get to a capper toward the end, but Tom... I, no, I think, I mean, I, you know, you I think Mike, Michael uh, focused on the right thing at the beginning, and I think this question, which the last questioner asked, is exactly the issue, and... Uh, I, I would have liked to be able to explore a little bit more about quantum mechanics, uh, so it isn't quite so obtuse, and about the Higgs boson. But you know that that uh, the Higgs business is is. I remember when I you know was uh, at university, um, the the way they sort of filter out people in physics is with electromagnetism. Um, and I, sometimes I wish I hadn't managed to, to pass it. It's nasty, right? Uh, it is nasty because it is, it is all vector theories and stuff like that. It's very mathematical. Awful lot of it is in the math. And electroweak is the same kind of theory because the electromagnetism is part of it. It is very mathematical, and so it sometimes becomes very difficult. I mean, Lisa Randall said, geez, I can't explain uh, the Higgs mechanism because it is so, it's so much in the math. I think I could, uh, we could sit down for 20 minutes or 10 minutes, and I could get you to the basic understanding of it, but it involves a lot of concepts, you know, like gauge symmetries, I mean, and, and things like that that uh, I think Michael wisely uh, protected me from. <laughs> Jan, go ahead. How about the gravity? Are we getting any closer to fathoming how gravity is part of this? Well, well let, me, let me take advantage of that question to, to ask uh, Tom to expand also in responding to it to his research on uh, gravitational uh, fields, just so that we know what you're doing there. All right, uh, that is a bag of worms too, but um, all right. Uh, the answer to your question, um, general relativity is in damn good shape. Uh, I think it's a four, it's, what did I put it? It must be at least four stars, not five. No, four stars I gave it. I mean, it's hard to test because it's dealing with uh, all kinds of things, but there's been a huge number of tests of it, all right? Um, 
there's a bending of light. I mean, one of the early ones was the precision, the precession of the perihelion of Mercury. So the planet Mercury is, like all planets, has an elliptical orbit, and it's um, uh, it's um, the, the the direction that the ellipse points moves a little bit over the centuries. It's some uh, 574 seconds per century, not a lot, arc seconds, not so a uh, couple of minutes. Um, so it moves a little bit, and that was calculated in the, in the 19th century, uh, and there was this discrepancy, this discrepancy of about 43 arc seconds. It was calculated from all the other planets pushing and pulling on Mercury. And so there's 43 seconds left over, and general relativity uh, accounts for that right on. Uh, it does it by basically uh, the effect of the curvature of Mercury's own gravity, gravitational field on its orbit. All right? And so it is really a, a, a very robust uh, theory. Right? And there's a, it, it is involved in uh, when they do the GPS calculations, if you didn't uh, use general relativity and the curvature of space and all that kind of stuff, uh, Hawking says you'd be off by uh, uh, a kilometer. I'm not sure that's quite correct, but it, it's... It's a lot, all right, and it, it's necessary. Uh, so it's in good shape, all right. Well, what about your the, research? So one of the predictions of, thank you, uh, one of the predictions of uh, of general relativity is that you have uh, gravitational waves that uh, are very analogous uh, to uh, uh, electromagnetic waves, radio waves, and light and stuff like that. Um, they uh, most importantly have exactly the same speed. The speed of, of gravitational waves should be this, exactly the same as the speed of light. They fall off as one over the distance, just like um, uh, electromagnetism. And so they're really quite the same, comma, but. Uh, they are a little... Uh, oh, the other one is... I mean, see, in Newton thought about... Uh, instantaneous action at a distance, all right? So any effect of gravity just would happen. Well, that it would mean that you would violate the speed of light, and so this, these were major breakthroughs. So the, um, the difference between gravitational waves and electromagnetic waves is fairly easy to explain in that uh, a radio wave, in fact, this building... Uh, mm -hmm. is famous because uh, Marconi. Marconi's original site for mm -hmm. broadcasting across the Pacific. And they have huge antenna farms. Actually, you can see some of the antenna farms near here. Um, and they're complicated. But basically, uh, it works because uh, you have a long wire and the electric charge moves back and forth in one direction. It's called a dipole uh, because it's got two poles. Uh, and uh, that uh, creates uh, an electromagnetic uh, uh, radio wave. Now, the problem is if you do some really simple uh, thinking about it, if you calculate what a dipole would do for a mass instead of a charge, because the source of a gravitational wave is a, a mass, uh, you would find that a dipole... If, if there was a dipole effect, that would violate the conservation momentum. 
I mean, it's really simple to, to show that. It's just uh, the, the change in the mass over distance, in fact, turns out to be uh, just uh, momentum, and momentum has to be conserved, all right? So it can't be a dipole. It has to be uh, the next higher thing, which is a quadrupole, all right, which is a, like four, two arms, if you wish. So it can't be spherical. So the source of a gravitational wave um, has to be some kind of a accelerating uh, non-spherical mass, unlike uh, electromagnetism. Um, and the, when you, when a, I'll come back to this. Um, so they have, in fact, been indirectly detected. All right. Uh, the way that was done got Taylor and Halsey a Nobel Prize because they looked at uh, what's known as a binary pulsar, which is two stars. Actually, these are, these are neutron stars, which rotate around each other extremely precisely. So pulses uh, are detected in, uh, with radio telescopes on the Earth with incredible precision. I mean, they're just very good. And it's the, it was PSR B1913 plus 16 in the catalog. Uh, and they tracked it for like 30 or 40 years. And they found that it was slowing down um, I've been tracked to within 15 microseconds since its uh, discovery, and it was slowing down by 76 microseconds every year. And they did this over 15 or 20 years. And this is precisely what general re relativity predicts. If, in fact, these two objects are rotating each other, they, they're, not, uh, they're not spherical because there's two of them, and so they're radiating some... Uh, uh, gravity, uh, gravitational waves, and that if you radiate waves and you lose some energy, and conservation of energy works, and so they slow down, and they're slowing down by exactly what general relativity would predict. So it's, it's another major triumph for for general relativity, and so they have been detected indirectly. So what we're trying to do is to d detect them directly, uh, and this is not exactly easy. Uh, because when they, what happens is when they, uh, they could be coming, the, the canonical sources uh, would be when, say, uh, orbiting neutron stars or orbiting black holes, uh, which exist, we know approximately how many they are, uh, would ultimately lose their energy and spiral into each other, uh, into a collapse in that last spiral is going to generate a huge amount of uh, gravitational uh, wave energy. And so that comes all in all directions, and some of it clearly is coming to the Earth. And the effect of it is, uh, if it were a dipole, it would just change length, because remember I said that uh, what gravity does is affect curvature of space, so what a gravitational wave does is cause a ripple in space. And since this can't be a dipole, it effectively what it does is it, as it comes through, it shrinks one dimension and increases the other dimension as it, as it comes through. So a uh, round table becomes slightly ellipse, elliptical in one direction, and then in the next fraction, depending on the frequency, it becomes a little larger in the other dimension. But these numbers are not big. Uh, the effect that uh, one is looking for is, a, is something like 10 to the minus 22 or 20, 10 to the minus 23. So 
there are a number of large interferometers. Um, the biggest ones are this uh, laser LIGO project, laser interferometer gravity observatory, gravitational wave observatory, uh, and they are interferometers with arms that are four kilometers in length. They're L-shaped. Um, there's one of them in Livingston, Louisiana, another one on the Hanford Reservation in the state of Washington. There's an Italian-French one in Pisa, which is a nice place to do mm -hmm. gravitational research, because mm -hmm. um, that's where Galileo dropped his balls. Um, and uh, there are others being done. And so what you're looking for, as I said, is a slight shrinking of one arm and a slight lengthening of the other arm. And these are four-kilometer-long vacuums with mirrors at the ends and at the center point. And as the one arm shrinks and the other one length lengthens, you can see a slight change in the interference between the light and the two arms. Cool. All right? And... Um, <laughs> That's it's, what you're doing. That's what I'm participating okay. in. It's a big effort. A few more questions. Yes. Uh, so if the correct model of the universe turns out to be incestible, <coughs> would that represent a cap on our knowledge of physics or a block on it? Or? If, the, if the correct model of the universe uh, is untestable, does that represent a cap on our knowledge? Great question. Um, That's what bothers Lightman. Uh, I mean, that's what that's no, what he that's talks a separate, about. I think that's a separate issue. Um, no, I mean, it, it, this is a, actually a deeper question because I, I hope you intended it as such, but it's a deep question because it's a big difficulty that this is all going on at such high energy scales. So, what is it that we might see? where we can get at it, all right? That What's would, the it here? What prediction from, say, M-theory, okay. all right? Um, and there are some imaginable ones. Uh, if, For example, it is thought that uh, the reason gravity is so weak is uh, that uh, it, in fact, works in the other dimensions, whereas the f other four forces only work in our, our space. All right, and so gravity is wasting all its time in all these other dimensions, and therefore it's weak where we are. Um, so it is consistent with many things we know, and so that is already some way a test. But we would like some prediction. So uh, you could have some predictions where something then gets lost into an extra dimension, and there's some loss of energy. And I can assure you, there's a lot of people looking for that sort of thing at, uh, at CERN and Fermilab and elsewhere. Um, there are some, uh, there's another thing that's going on right now, which is a bit esoteric, um, but it, it is a test. Um, uh, let me put it off because Michael will probably cut me off on this one. Yeah, I also but, just but want to get more it, questions. But I think it's a yeah. good, I mean, the, the point is, well, it's a cap on our knowledge. I think people can keep working to try to refine the theories and make sure they're self-consistent and they don't blow up and they work. And then... That's the best we're going to know. But it would be nice if they would have some prediction, not just agree with what we've already seen. Yes, Peter. We like surprises. Is the yeah. Why do they call the uh, Higgs boson the God particle? Oh, shoot. <laughs> 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 um, 
Well, where shall we begin? Um, because Leon Letterman, who I worked for and is a dear friend, uh, was pushing real hard to keep uh, Congress from uh, cutting off funding for the superconducting <laughs> super collider. <laughs> and um, he, cl he claims his uh, publisher refused to let him call it the goddamn particle. <laughs> Uh, but, in fact, uh, I think it was somewhat overstated uh, because the, his idea, I mean, he makes a very strong case in his book, The God Particle, which was written in the, in the uh, early 90s, and it's a little good, but a little dated. Uh, makes a strong case, basically, because the Higgs gives potentially, well, they were saying it gives mass to everything, all right? Well, the fact of life is it only for sure gives mass to the, the two uh, uh, exchange force bosons for the weak interaction, the electroweak interaction. Uh, and um, it might be the mechanism that gives uh, 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 mass to all the other particles. I mean, it's, it's a... a a possibility, but it doesn't predict them exactly. It only predicts exactly the the, the, the gauge bosons. So that's another reason. And then there is something, you know, that boy, I hope nobody listens to this. Uh, but if you if you if you uh, really look at it, um, it turns out that the mass of the stuff that we care about, protons and neutrons and nuclei, is only slightly impacted by uh, the kind of mass that the Higgs could bring to the, the quarks, because it's only the quarks that it gives mass to, that the proton and the neutron, for example, their mass is mostly due to the the, uh, the strong interaction, the quantum chromodynamics, the color forces within um, that are holding the quarks together. So most of their, their mass is coming from that energy and not actually from the Higgs mechanism. Uh, and so I think a lot of time has gone by and a lot of people wish it were not called the God particle. Was it supposed to mean mass equals substance equals meaning or something? Yeah. I could, I should have brought the book along, but yeah, I mean, it's it has, and there's other. He makes some other very good uh, points for it as to why it is. I mean, it's not, it wasn't totally flippant. It was quite serious, and it was quite strongly meant, but it's somewhat overstated. Let's uh, other questions. Yes, um, you were talking about uh, quantum mechanics being um, responsible for a lot of the everyday objects that we have around in terms of electronics and things that are around. Um, can you think of uh, uh, any, just let your mind wander to still with maybe quantified gravity or any other, you know, some, some dream applications that may come in the future from a greater understanding of that? I can think of some, but I wouldn't want to say them out loud. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, whenever you understand something better, and clearly here we would be understanding time and space uh, better, and et cetera. It'd I, um, be nice to understand gravity better. Working on that one, right. I, I, I no. <laughs> right. Gentleman right back there. Um, do you know about Randall Mills, Dr. Randall Mills, uh, with Blacklight Power? It's a company in uh, New Jersey, and 
They're working on a black light process, which... Uh, what is black light? I think it's like a plasma uh, that they make, uh, ionized gas, and they use catalysts to create uh, energy. No, I don't he has, know. He has written some unified theory of... Yeah. You know, so. I, I don't know. Uh, and I, it, I don't know. Good. I think it's not connected to um, um, the mainstream. <laughs> Ron? Well, I have a question, and it's relatively simple, and you won't have to spend a long time on it. Uh, it's been my understanding that at this point we know, or we think we know, that space is infinite. And that's a real hard concept to wrap your head around. But you said if it continued on, uh, things would freeze up. I don't uh, know. Isn't, this, is good. this is a wonderful question. Um, space is not infinite. It's not infinite. No, it's not infinite. Um, and this is a problematical. Um, everything we know about the universe is that it's a closed, it is a closed uh, three-dimensional sphere in space, all right? Which means that it's just, this, it's the same issue as people had when they were thinking about a flat earth, they were worried about falling off the edge, all right? But you could go around in any direction on the earth's surface and you wouldn't fall off an edge. And it's the same thing with the universe. If you could go far enough, you would never fall off, all right? Um, the question of coming back to the same place is, is another whole bag of worms because there isn't enough time to do it, okay, given that you can't go faster than the speed of light, right? So the issue then is what happens to the universe. Before this cosmological constant thing came back, uh, it was thought that there were three possibilities. The universe could uh, expand forever or it could uh, end up in a, a big crunch all right, just collapse back down again, or it could just sort of coast to a stop, all right? And if you don't have a cosmological constant, then uh, the uh, amount of energy, the amount of mass density or energy density that you need in the universe to have it coast to a stop is exactly the same one as we were talking about that uh, has to do with the flatness of the universe, all right? Uh, and, but... <laughs> And so that's what everybody thought, that it was just going to coast to a stop. Um, we know that we are, we are at this flat point, right? Because there's very good reason if you are slightly off of what I was talking about, the critical density, uh, then things are either going to curl up real fast or, or uh, ex expand real fast. So we know that we're, not expand, but do uh, the other. Uh, we know we're at that flat point. All right, uh, that's a very strong case. So, but the cosmological constant coming in says that we are, in fact, accelerating in our expansion. And that's a, a separate issue, and it means that, in fact, it looks like the universe is just going to keep on expanding forever, and things are just going to cool off, and everything is just going to... But it's a lot of time. Tom Nash, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you for having me. It was yeah. a lot of fun. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>